you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the book of James. As we begin a study this morning, walking through the book of James, I'm excited about, uh, about walking through the book of James, and thank you, Dr. David, for setting me up this morning. Where you at? <laughs> Everyone uh, looking forward to my first sermon. Pray that I don't disappoint. But as we, uh, as we open God's word this morning, let us go to him in a time of prayer. Let us pray. Father, by your grace, we have even arrived at this building this morning to worship you. And so, Father, we are so thankful for even the mercy that you've already extended to us today. Thank you for the air that we breathe, the life that we have. Thank you, God, that we get to meet as your people to worship you corporately, to encourage one another, to submit our lives to your word. And Lord, now as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, give us minds to comprehend, God, give us hearts to love your word, and that by your Holy Spirit, you would illumine us, Father, illuminate our minds and just speak into our lives that we might hear and heed your word and we might follow you and walk with you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> if you found your place in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 1, say amen. Let us read together. James, a bondservant of God, or a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As we approach this passage this morning, the title of the message, if you're following along in the worship guide, you'll see the insert. The title of the message is The Path of Christian Maturity, Growing Pains. You know, oftentimes as we're growing, we, we have growing pains, especially as children. I know my sons are in the midst of having some growing pains. Uh, they wake up at night with legs hurting. You, you know what I'm talking about, those growing pains that you have. Uh, sometimes we have growing pains as we, um, as we grow older as well, right? Those growing pains, we start out with them and we end with them, <laughs> By God's grace, we do. But in James' letter to the church, James is writing to the 12 tribes that are dispersed abroad. He is writing to the, the, the true church, the multi-ethnic church, the church that has spread out across the Mediterranean world. And as we uh, begin here, I, I want to just kind of lay out for us who James is and Uh, Just kind of take us maybe on a couple of steps back here to kind of see the context and the background through which James is writing. The letter of James was written about A.D. 48, some 18 years or so after the day of Pentecost on that great day when Peter the Apostle stood and proclaimed the gospel and men from uh, every tribe were gathered there in Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost and they heard the gospel in their native tongue. James was the lead elder of the church there in Jerusalem. 
He was the lead elder of this body of believers that had come together and had heard the gospel and responded through faith. Now consider what was going on at the time that James is writing in 48 AD after that day of Pentecost, the early church had seen really explosive growth in so many ways. They had seen explosive growth numerically. They had seen explosive growth uh, geographically. They had seen explosive growth just spiritually and in the depth of their people. Thousands of souls had been added to the church. The apostles were proclaiming the gospel and and the spiritual growth of, of the new converts was occurring. The church was growing. Things were really going well. People had come together and they were making sacrifices like we see in the beginning of the book of Acts where, uh, where, where uh, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, goes and lays at the apostles' feet a gift from selling land because money was needed. for. The, I mean, wonderful things were happening in the midst of the church. And then as the church grows, the, the church begins to get scattered. And it's scattered because Stephen, the first martyr that's recorded in the book of Acts, he's proclaiming the gospel or sharing his testimony at least. And, uh, and this one named Saul rises up and leads a charge and, and, and they stone Stephen. And after Stephen was stoned, the church scatters and is scattered all across the Mediterranean world. And as the church is scattered all across the Mediterranean world, the gospel is moving all across the Mediterranean world. About that time, God raises up this man, Saul, and he's on the Damascus Road. He has the vision from the Lord. He then is named Paul. God raises him up as the one who will be the missionary to the Gentiles. He goes on the first missionary journey. As he and Barnabas are finishing the first missionary journey, on their way back to Jerusalem, they are They're heading there for that monumental meeting, the Jerusalem Council that we see in Acts chapter 15. And that occurs right about the time of A.D. 49. Just before James writes this letter, as Paul and Barnabas is ending their their first missionary journey, and, and James is writing this letter to the churches that have been scattered abroad, so that's what's going on contextually for James, the leader of the church there in Jerusalem. James is the, he's, he's the leading role in the church. His leading role in the church is evident. Uh, when you read through Acts chapter 15, you see how all the discussion was going on between the elders and leaders of the church. And then when they finish, James stands up and says, okay, brothers, listen. We see James' pastoral role there in Acts chapter 15 as he kind of brings that discussion to a head. This is the man, James, who pins the inspired words that we're looking at this morning, the words to the church. The letter of James, though, I want you to know it's, it's a little different than other New Testament epistles. It's what we have called in the New Testament, it's wisdom literature. Like, much like Kevin has just finished walking us through wisdom literature in the Old Testament, this is our New Testament version of wisdom literature. And so there's, there's wise statements for living, but there's, there's wisdom here for Christian living. And so James is, is desiring to instruct God's people in wise, Christward living. At times, James may seem a little sporadic as we read through the book of James, he's sporadic somewhat in his exhortation and in his pastoral ministry, but this is intentional language that James uses to call us. He calls us to, uh, to live our lives in light of the gospel of Christ. 
in the 108 verses that are total in the book of James, 50 of those use the imperative language, the imperative tense. That's the command in the Greek New Testament. He, he commands us 50 verses out of the 108 verses. His exhortation and his challenge to us is replete with holy exhortation, practical exhortation. And so James challenges the core of our Christianity. He meticulously dissects the sin of believers in the church. He, he exhorts us as disciples of Christ to, to live Christ, Christ-centered lives. But before we see really how these growing pains foster our growth and maturity, I want us to focus for a moment on two things that come out of verse 1 by way of introduction. And those two things that come out of verse 1, first we see James, a servant or a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think first we see a pattern for church leadership that James models here in verse 1. And this pattern for, for, church, for church leadership, it's what he calls himself is a servant. Get the picture, James the just as he's known by historians, lead elder of the Jerusalem church, the half-brother of Christ. He begins by addressing the church, calling himself servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This word servant, slave, it's the word we have in the New Testament which describes that social standing of slave. And so, James calls himself servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are humble words to say servant of God. The one who is the under-shepherd of the church at Jerusalem, his statement and his claim as servant or as slave is one of humility. James's mindset is a mindset of humility. It's a humble willingness to be at God's disposal. And so in the big picture, I think we see that James realizes that he's just one man. He's just one man that God has called and he's graciously called and he sees this calling in his life as an opportunity to live humbly and submit to God and follow his lead. He sees this as an opportunity to be the humble servant of God that God has called him to be and to exhort the church. And so James doesn't take stock in that he's the elder of the church. He simply says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he submits himself to the lordship of Christ here even. He submits himself as as one who is under authority. And so he writes as one whose ministry is grounded in the authority of God's word. He writes as one whose life is submitted to the lordship of Christ. His words are the very words of this letter that we have. They teach us the mind of Christ and his life models service to all. This is James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so church leaders here at Crosspoint, elders, we, we do well to heed the challenge that James lays out before us, to hear the challenge set forth by James here in his view of himself, the reality of his calling, the reality of all of our calling as believers, servant of God, recognizing that we, as God's people, we are servants, 
called into this fellowship to serve one another. But not only do we see a pattern for church leadership, I think secondly in this introduction we see a doctrinal statement of Christianity. We would be, it would be easy for us just to kind of gloss over what he says here, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to understand what's going on for especially those Jewish Christians. We, we can't overlook this doctrinal statement. James is equating loyalty to God and loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ as one in the same. He incorporates Jesus Christ into the Jewish thought of God as monotheists. So Jews think God is one, right? Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And so James is taking this thought of the Jewish Christians that God is one and he's, he's equating loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ as one in the same. And while today we might not think that is a necessary distinction to make, I think it's a very necessary distinction that we must make. We can't just casually read over that. We must understand why that is doctrinally significant. It's doctrinally significant because we claim that Jesus Christ and God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are three in one. Jesus Christ is God who dwelt on earth, God in flesh, we see that in the beginning of the Gospel of John. We, we see it, we're reminded of it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, speaking of Christ. And so we can't just, just glance past this, this doctrinal truth here. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a distinct doctrine of Christianity. And it's very important for us to highlight and, and major on such a doctrine and the emphasis of such a doctrine, especially with so many different faiths today claiming to be Christian, so many different belief systems out there claiming to believe in God, but we know scripturally these are contradictions to the very truth of God, the very truth of God's word when somebody says that Jesus Christ was not the Son of God. It says that, denies Jesus Christ as God in flesh or denies that Jesus Christ is God. And so we must be very careful to keep that doctrine as the center point and one of the center points in the faith in our Christianity. And so I think James makes this doctrinal statement of Christianity. Christianity, It's, it's significant because of the Jewish believers there. They, they, they need to see the equation of loyalty between God and Christ. And so James is saying, servant of God, servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as James writes to the church that's scattered abroad, he's writing to give instruction to God's people. He's writing to, uh, to encourage God's people, but he's writing pastorally to make certain that God's people are walking in Christ and navigating this life so that they are growing in grace and growing in their relationship to Christ. And so I want us to look at how these growing pains then foster maturity in the life of God's people. I think there are two things that we'll see in this passage, beginning in verse 2, going through verse 4. 
And the first one is, trials teach us a proper perspective. James is advocating here that trials come in life. Now, if you've never walked through a trial in your life, then I don't know if you're blessed or if you're lying. (laughs) Because we all walk through trials. We all have difficult seasons in life that we walk through. We all stumble. We all come to points in our life where we just don't know how, how we're going to make it to the next day. And James has a very practical word of exhortation for us. A very practical word of challenge, even a command, as he says here in verse 2. Consider it all joy. Here's that commanding language. Consider it all joy. Count it all joy. Think it all joy when you encounter various trials. You know, the ways of the world are, are opposite of the ways of God. We, we see this over and over again in Scripture. We see it time and time again In Matthew chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus himself tells the disciples, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Not exactly how the world defines the greatest, right? The greatest among you shall be your servant. Jesus himself modeled this when he he washed the disciples' feet. He himself, the Lord of creation, stooped down, washed the disciples' feet, and served. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, we See it as well, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And he says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and, and he's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. You see, the principle that's often at work in the kingdom of God is that God's ways are opposite from the ways of the world. We see the same principle fleshing out here in James. A similar truth at work in this passage. We might even think James is crazy when we read verse 2. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. What in the world is James talking about? How are we to have joy in the midst of trials? And what's he calling us to? This joy that he is wanting us to have and commanding us to have. I'm talking about when when things are tough in life, he's saying have joy, consider it, think it, all joy. Count it as a joy when hardship comes in your life. That's what he's saying. How in the world can we do this? And the reality is what James is calling us to is to walk through these trials with a sheer or pure joy. In the midst of these trials, having joy praising God in the midst of these trials, thanking God for His hand in our lives in the midst of trials that we walk through. But I want to caution you that this joy is not just a superficial or external happiness. And so we can't get mixed up there and think that this is some uh, external smile that we put on our face or superficial smile that we might put on our face when difficult times come doesn't even mean that we, have to, um, that we have to like the difficult season that we're walking through. That's not what James is saying. James is pointing above and beyond the circumstances that we're walking, to, he, walking through. He's pointing to walking in joy. 
He's pointing to having our eyes fixed and focused on somewhere else other than the struggles that we're walking through in this life. And that place where we fix our eyes is the position of Christ. And so James is saying that when we walk through trials, when we encounter various trials, we are to have joy. And I want to submit to you this morning that the joy that James is talking about for the believer is a joy that really comes from a a reservoir of, of just vast, unending supply of God's love and God's grace. It comes from a, a deep place. It comes from a, a, a place where, uh, where we know the presence of God as the believer. It comes from a place where we walk in the fullness of God. And it, it comes from a place where, where believers depend upon God. And, and in that experience, we learn the fullness of God's presence. And, and in walking through trials, we learn the sufficiency of the Spirit's strength. And as we walk through trials, we, we learn of God's wise counsel. And it, it takes us to places where we, we, we plummet the depth of a an increasing and ever-increasing faith and growth because it challenges us down very deep when we walk through difficult trials. You may, maybe you've never had such a difficult trial come in your life. There are some who have, there are others who haven't, and sometimes our trials and our struggles are simply relegated to um, keeping our eyes fixed on Christ or... Um, Maybe there are some whose struggles and trials are realizing that uh, an addiction in life is something that is weighing you down or is that is keeping you from walking in the fullness of joy in Christ. Or maybe it's realizing that your loyalty to Christ has been divided. Or maybe it's a little more serious and realizing that a spouse has uh, committed adultery or realizing that maybe it's a physical act or maybe it's an addiction to pornography or Maybe it's the, the, the wife who, who wants her husband to, um, to be the spiritual leader in the home or, or longs for the salvation of her husband. You know, these trials, there's a reason James says, consider all joy when you encounter various trials. These trials are many. They come in many shapes and forms, different sizes. But the one thing that is certain is that these trials, it's not if they come, it's when they come. And so James is teaching us, he's saying these trials will come and we must consider it all joy when these trials come. And so he's trying to teach us the proper perspective for walking through these trials as they come in our lives. This is why Peter can say in 1 Peter 1, 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. In 1 Peter 4, 12, when persecution was coming on the church, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange things were happening to you. See, James is speaking about believers. Here's what he's saying. We as believers must intentionally fix our minds on, on the joy of Christ. We must intentionally fix our, our focus and our gaze upon Christ. The natural inclination of man is to focus on our troubles when trials come. It is to get bogged down in the details and the specifics of the situation. But James is telling us to think it joy, consider it all 
joy, count it as a joy. And so when these trials come, James knows these trials can bring grief in our life. He knows that they can act as a danger or be a danger that will drive us to despair if we don't lean on and place our faith in and follow God and look to Him for our joy. These dangers, uh, they, they can derail our faith. These dangers that come, they can, um, they can cause us to stumble and they can cause us to fall. And so he says, consider it all joy when you encounter these trials. I think one of the reasons that he says, consider it all joy and knows that we can consider it all joy and count it all joy is because he knows the promise of God is that God will never leave us. That even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances and seasons in life, God never, ever, ever leaves his people. We may take our eyes off of him, but his, his hand is in our lives. And remember, James is trying to teach us the proper perspective And the proper perspective is that God uses trials in our life. Not if they come, but when they come. And God uses these trials to strengthen us. God uses these trials in our life to shape us and to fashion us, to grow us. And so when these various trials come, the first step in walking through them is to think it joy, to intentionally set our minds on Christ And so we combat these trials through joy. This joy, this joy comes from a spirit-infused desire and determination to look unto God, to fix our eyes on the hope of our salvation. Think about Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The author says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who what? For the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is that joy that was set before him but the joy of eternal hope and eternal redemption of God's people? This is the joy that is set before us when trials come. James commands us, consider it all joy. We do this by looking to Christ. We do this by trusting in God's hand in our lives, knowing that he is in control of all things. And it's a great thing to be able to trust in a good God who has all things under his control and within his power and within his grip. Most importantly, he has you and I in the midst of our trials in his grip. And so James can say, consider it joy. Think it joy. But not only do trials teach us a proper perspective, I want you to see that trials also perfect us in the process. We learn a proper perspective that is considerate joy when we walk through various trials. But trials also perfect us in the process. In verses 3 and 4, he says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
There, there's a connection here between verses uh, 2 and 3 that, that, that we need to point out, that I need to point out, and that is when he, he speaks about trials in verse 2, and then there's a connection with this word testing in verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. This word changes from trial to testing in verse 3. And it's significant of the process that we walk through. It's a process. And it produces within us endurance. But this trial, this test that we walk through, it is a process. And you know what it's testing? It's testing the genuineness of our faith. And this trial that we're walking through, this test that we walk through, and we're considering all joy, what happens in our life? It it brings about endurance. One commentator says it's staying power. It's spiritual toughness. It brings about endurance in the life of the believer so that as we, as we walk with God, we're, we're depending upon God and He is strengthening us. He's giving us the source and the sustenance that we need as we're continuously depending upon Him. And our joy is not determined by the circumstances that we're walking in, but our joy is determined by the measure of God's love with which He loves us. And our joy is determined by the grace that is just poured out in our lives. And so this, this process that we walk, you know, we, we don't like to walk through a process. We don't like for things to take time to develop, especially not, especially younger generations in today's culture. I mean, we want things now, instantaneous, right? But in the same way that as a runner, it, it takes time to develop endurance in order to run the marathon. For the believer in Christ, it takes time and process to gain endurance so that in the midst of the process, we are being perfected. Look ahead at verse 4. The end result is what? Maturity? That we would be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing? All right, back up to verse 3, though. Here's the testing. It's the process that we walk through. It is the process of growth that God uses in our lives. So these trials are used by God in our lives to refine us and to purify us. In fact, that is what this word testing is referencing there in verse 3. This testing, it's like the testing that happens of gold or the, the refining that happens of gold in the refinery whenever it's put into uh, the, the fire, the the gold melts down, and as the gold melts down, there are impurities that are within the gold. And so those impurities are drawn out, so that's what, what's left, is that 100% pure gold. This process of refining that happens in the life of the believer is really no different. These trials are the refinery of life, fitting us for heaven taking us in the direction of growing in moral character and growing in our moral purity so that we become like God. God uses these trials in our life as a process to perfect our faith. That's what Peter speaks about in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so what does this testing produce? It produces endurance. 
it produces spiritual toughness, so to speak. It produces a sensitivity to the Spirit in our lives so that we are geared and ready. We are being fitted for heaven. So while trials perfect us through refinement, trials also perfect us through developing this character. And so this producing of endurance in our life, he says in verse 4, let endurance have its perfect result. What is this perfect result of endurance? What is it? It's that we finish the race. The perfect result of endurance is that we finish the race. Is that not the goal of enduring? We, we, we finish the race. We, we run this race in Christ and we finish the race being fitted and perfected in and through these trials that we walk through so that our character is shaped and we are shaped into the Christ-like image that God desires us to be. He says, let endurance have its perfect result, and the end result is that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Understanding this, that God designs our testing for our benefit and for His glory. God designs this testing and these trials in life for our benefit and for His glory. This is what Jesus is speaking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he challenges the disciples in Matthew 5.48. He he says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I, I don't want us to miss this. Trials do not bring about maturity in the life of the believer. Trials do not bring about maturity in our lives. That's not what we've been saying. Trials present the opportunity for maturity to be brought in the life of the disciple. The way that we respond and the perspective that we have as we walk through trials that are that come in life, the perspective through which we approach and enter and walk through those trials, that is what brings maturity in the life of the believer. And so this process and gearing our our minds in in the the process and, and understanding that joy, we are to consider it all joy when we encounter these various trials, getting the perspective right so that we see what God is doing or at least We may not understand what God is doing, but we're trusting Him. And for the joy that is set before us, we are walking and growing in endurance so that our faith is carried out and is carried to the ultimate end and the goal of being perfect in Christ is met. God desires to work in each of our lives that we would draw near to Him. That even in the midst of the trials that we go through, that they would bring maturity in the believer's life. And that ultimately we would respond to the trials and the refining process with joy. And that we would walk with endurance. And that endurance would have its perfect result so that we may be perfect and complete. And that last phrase is lacking in nothing. That is developing within us the moral character of God. And things in our life that are weeded out, 
that are confessed, that are repented, that are turned, and we, we run from as we learn them in the midst of trials. And God uses these trials in the fire, that refining in life to purify us. We must be sensitive and hear what God is leading us to and how and what He is doing in the midst of these trials because here's why we're being fitted for our heavenly home. And therefore, let us have joy. Let us ask God to give us joy even in the midst of the trials that we go through. Because as we grow in maturity in Christ, there are growing pains. These these things in our life will be shaved off. These struggles that we walk through, these trials that we walk through, we must depend upon God. We must look to Him. And we must count it all joy. Think it joy as we walk through them. My challenge this morning to us, the challenge that I sensed from the Lord this week is, am I really ready to count it joy when I encounter trials in my life? Are you, are we really ready to count it joy in our life when we walk through trials? Are, are we practicing walking through these trials and having joy in the midst of them? Maybe you're going through a trial right now and you're finding it very difficult to have joy in the midst of the trial. And I pray that God's word will encourage us this morning that as we enter and walk through these trials that we, we mentally think it, we have to look to God and sometimes even in the midst of the trial say, God, give me joy. Teach me to trust in your sovereignty. Teach me to trust deeply in your love and in your mercy. Maybe this morning there are some other struggles that you're walking through and you don't see them as trials because you're struggling right now just to get rid of sin in your life. Whatever it may be, I want to encourage you this morning to spend some time in prayer, committing before the Lord, uh, maybe the challenge that He's laid upon our heart. Uh, and so I'm going to close us in prayer, and as I do, Angela's going to come, or the the, um, the worship band. I can't remember. Does the worship band only come up? For, okay, they do. All right. So the worship band's going to come up, and uh, this is just a time of invitation. And um, I know that we don't always do invitations, but I, I want to give you an opportunity to come and to maybe spend some time in prayer if there's uh, something that you want to just lay, a burden that you need to lay, get off of your heart uh, and lay it before the Lord. You can come and kneel at the steps down here this morning. Uh, or you can just go to a brother or sister and ask them to pray with you. Uh, and I'll be down here certainly if you want to pray. Uh, and so let me pray and then... Uh, then you respond as the Lord leads. Let's pray. Father, I pray for each one of us this morning that your word would continue to, uh, to touch our hearts and our minds. And Lord, that even in the midst of trials that we walk through, help us, God, to, uh, to understand that this is your way of shaping us and fashioning us into your likeness. So I pray, Father, that, uh, that you would teach us, help us to learn 
how to have joy, your joy, in the midst of trial, to fix our eyes upon Christ, who he himself, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Thank you, Lord, for our salvation. And now, Lord, strengthen us to respond as you lead us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand?